great things are before us, and we want to call the people from their indifference to get ready. The ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are two monumental pillars, one without and one within the church. Upon these ordinances, Christ has inscribed the name of the true God. Christ has made baptism the sign of entrance into his spiritual kingdom. He has made this a positive condition upon which all must comply who wish to be acknowledged as under the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before man can find a home in the church, before passing the threshold of God's spiritual kingdom, he is to receive the impress of the divine name, the Lord our righteousness. We are not now to cast away our confidence, but to have firm assurance, firmer than ever before. Let thy kingdom come. I guess we'll pray now, and we'll get into our subject. Father, I just come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you so much that I can be here. Once again, you've brought me back to Rosie, California, and I just pray you'd use me to be a blessing today. Not for any good that is in me, but because I desire to be a blessing. And I know that you want to bless us. You want to speak to us. You promise where two or more are gathered in your name that there you are in the midst. And you promise a double portion of your spirit, Jesus, on the Sabbath day. So we claim those promises. And I thank you for your great love and goodness to us. I think of the kingdom of glory, the future glory we have been told by the Apostle Paul that I have not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And so I just pray you'd open up our understanding and bless us now. In the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray these things. Amen. As I open, I'd like to read a quote to you as we think about the kingdom of glory, because that is what I'm going to talk about today, the second coming of Jesus Christ and entering into the kingdom of glory, the blessed hope, which is what we all want. Amen? Amen. Because this life is but a vapor, and then it's eternity, and forevermore. It says, in the darkest days of her long conflict with evil, the church of God has been given revelations of the eternal purpose of Jehovah. His people have been permitted to look beyond the trials of the present to the triumphs of the future. When the warfare, having been accomplished, the redeemed will enter into the possession of the promised land. These visions of future glory, scenes pictured by the hand of God, should be dear to his church today when the controversy of the ages is rapidly closing and the promised blessings are soon to be realized in all their fullness. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is coming soon. Amen? Amen. Everything that we can see going on in the world today would suggest that. And so we are to focus on the blessed hope. We are to look up. The Bible tells us when you see all these things come to pass, then what are you to do? You're to look up. We're a people of prophecy. Now go with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, 1 John chapter 3, we're told in the Word of God, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him 
purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So if we have this hope, this blessed hope, that Jesus Christ is coming again, and that we're going to enter into the kingdom of glory, that will be called the sons and daughters of God, then we seek to purify ourselves. Amen? Now, we've been talking about baptism and about communion. And that is a part of the process of this purification. But I want to read something to you as it relates to the kingdoms and the dispensation that we're living in. This quote, it says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, had been their message. At the expiration of the time, the 69 weeks of Daniel 9, which were to extend to the Messiah, the anointed one, Christ had received the anointing of the Spirit after his baptism by John and Jordan, and the kingdom of God, which they had declared to be at hand, was established by the death of Christ. Now, what is this kingdom? This kingdom was not as they had been taught to believe in earthly empire, nor was it that future immortal kingdom, which shall be set up when the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. That everlasting kingdom in which all dominions shall serve and obey him, taken from Daniel 7, 27. As used in the Bible, the expression kingdom of God is employed to designate both the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory. The kingdom of grace is brought to view by Paul in the epistle to the Hebrews after pointing to Christ, the compassionate intercessor, who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The apostle says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. The throne of grace represents the kingdom of grace. For the existence of a throne implies the existence of a kingdom. In many of his parables, Christ uses the expression, the kingdom of heaven, to designate the work of divine grace upon the hearts of men. And that's taken from Great Controversy, page 346, paragraph 4. And the quote I read to open was Patriarchs and Prophets 722. So when we're speaking of the kingdom of God, in the dispensation that we're now living in, we're thinking we are in the what? We are in the kingdom of grace preparing to enter into the kingdom of glory. Let me read you another quote. The kingdom of grace was instituted immediately after the fall of man, and praise God it was, or none of us would be here. Amen. When the plan was devised for the redemption of the guilty race, it then existed in the purpose and by the promise of God, and through faith men could become its subjects, yet it was not actually established until the death of Christ. Even after entering upon his earthly mission, the Savior, wearied with the stubbornness and ingratitude of men, might have drawn back from the sacrifice of Calvary. In Gethsemane, the cup of woe trembled in his hand. He might even then have wiped the blood sweat from his brow and have left the guilty race to perish in their iniquity. Had he done this, there could have been no redemption for fallen man. But when the Savior yielded up his life and with his expiring breath cried out, It is finished, then the fulfillment of the plan of redemption was assured, the promise of salvation made to the sinful parent Eden was ratified. The kingdom of grace, which had before existed by the promise of God, was then established. So at the death of Christ, the kingdom of grace has been established. And this is the kingdom that we're living in. And we think of these two great pillars that we've been talking about today. Baptism, which signifies justification, the entering in the kingdom of grace, and then communion and foot washing, a symbol of remaining within the kingdom of grace. And I'm going to talk more about preparing to enter into the kingdom of glory. What aspect of do we understand, especially uniquely as Adventist people today, Seventh-day Adventist Christians, and I claim to still be one, amen, as a noble name that we were called by. They've taken that name, but that is still my name. 
I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian preparing to enter into the kingdom of glory. How do we do that? Well, go with me to John chapter 15. We know this one. John chapter 15, verse 1. John 15, verse 1. And we read. John 15, verse 1. I am the vine, and my father is the husbandman. Verse 1 of John 15. Now, I believe that you all living out in this area can relate to this because I walked out this morning from where I'm staying and there are vineyards right across the street from where we're staying, vines. And the husbandman does what? The husband plants the vine, right? The husband is responsible for putting everything together to support the growth of the vine. So Jesus is saying that his father is the one that is responsible and he is the vine. It says in verse 2, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, who takes it away? The Father takes it away. And every branch that beareth fruit, who purges it? The Father purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So the Father and the Son directly working for our salvation. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, and ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If you're not connected to the vine, then nothing can happen in this kingdom of grace that we live in, preparing for the kingdom of glory. Now, we want to remain in the vine. And I want to read a couple of quotes to you as it relates to this. As we think about even in verse 2, where every branch that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. It says here, God has purchased us through Christ that he might be a propitiation for our sins. We are within the bounds of his mercy, for in mercy his arm encircles the whole human race. And as I was meditating on this quote, it's almost kind of difficult. Is she talking about the father here? Is she talking about the son? Or is she really describing both? I believe both in a sense, right? Because God has purchased through Christ, but yet through Christ... He is a propitiation for our sins. Because if the Father could have given Himself, He would have. And the Father has encircled us with the arms of mercy. Amen? Either by Christ or by Himself through Christ. Since Christ has paid the price for all the service that we should give Him, we are His servants by purchase. Now, what takes us away? It says here, worldly influences take us away from Christ And our portion is the same as that of the unfruitful branch. So if we're going to be taken away from the vine, well, then we can understand that worldly influence will be what does it. If we do not remain grafted into the vine, the world will take us away. We are Christ's property. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Are we in him by living faith? If we do not bear any fruit, the powers of darkness take possession of our minds, our affections, our surface, and we are of the world though we profess to be the children of God. That's kind of heavy, isn't it? We are the children of the world if we do not remain grafted in the vine and we can expect the worldly influences to slowly take us over and take us away from Jesus. They will purge us, so to speak. And it says there that men will gather them together to be burned. Well, men are of the world, right? The world will gather you to itself to be burned with it if we don't remain grafted into the vine of Christ. Now, I want to read one more quote to you. That was taken from the one I just read from MS 85, 1901, 
MS 85, 1901. The other quote I would read is, The branches of the vine cannot blend into each other. They are individually separate, yet every branch must be in fellowship with every other. This is important. We are separate, but we are in fellowship with one another. It says, if they are united in the same parent stock, okay? So if we are in the same vine, then we will be united together, amen? Okay, there's a, probably part of the reason why we're not so united, because perhaps not everyone is grafted into the same vine. They all draw nourishment from the same source. They drink of the same life-giving properties. So each branch of the true vine is separate and distinct, yet all are bound together in the parent stock. There can be no division. So you go out there and you look at a, a grape vine and you see that they're not divided. Those branches all coming out of the same vine, right? There's no division there. They are all linked together by his will to bear fruit wherever they can find place and opportunity. But in order to do this, the worker must hide self. He must give expression to his own mind and will. He is to express the mind and will of Christ. The human family are dependent upon God for the life, breath, and sustenance. God has designed the web and all our individual threads to compose the pattern. So the Father has designed the web. We are all individual threads within it. And then listen to this. It says the Creator is one. Now, who is the Creator? That's Jesus. The Creator is one with who? He's one with the Father. And it goes on to say, And He reveals Himself as the great reservoir of all that is essential for each separate life. Jesus Christ is our reservoir, amen? For us. That goes on to say, Christian unity consists in the branches being in the same parent stock, the vitalizing power of the center supporting the grafts that have united to the vine. In thoughts and desires, in words and actions, there must be an identity with Christ, a constant partaking of his spiritual life. Faith must increase by exercise. All who live near to God will have a realization of what Jesus is to them and they to Jesus. Now, who is that? What, is, what are we to Jesus and what is Jesus to us? Well, she just clarified it right before. She says the creator is one and he reveals himself as the great reservoir of all that is essential for each separate life. We understand then that Jesus to us is the great reservoir. He is the vine that we're drawing off of, amen? Each branch individually, but connected and unified one to another. And who is behind all of it is the husbandman, the father, amen? Jesus Christ is the foundation of all. No foundation can any man lay than that which is Christ Jesus. The father laid the foundation in Christ, and the typology shows itself over and over again. So this is important as we understand how baptism and communion denote entrance into the kingdom of grace in preparation for the kingdom of glory. Now, two ideas that I want to share with you because as we think about preparing for the kingdom of glory and entering into it, we think about the book of Daniel. We're admonished to study the book of Daniel. And Daniel opens with what? Daniel chapter 1 opens with what for us, really, in typology? It opens with health reform. So I want to read you a quote. As I was doing some research on the kingdom of glory... All are bound by the most sacred obligations to God to give heed or to heed the sound philosophy and genuine experience which he is now giving them in reference to health reform. He designs that the great subject of health reform shall be agitated and the public mind deeply stirred to investigate. For it is impossible for men and women 
with all their sinful, health-destroying, brain and nerve-aiding habits to discern sacred truth through which they are to be sanctified, refined, elevated, and made fit for the society of heavenly angels in the kingdom of glory. That's taken from Testimonies, Volume 3, page 162. It is impossible, impossible for us to prepare for the kingdom of glory, to live effectively in the kingdom of grace while preparing for the kingdom of glory if we ignore health reform. That's why I believe Daniel chapter 1 begins with health reform. And then from there, it builds with an understanding, an understanding that we all will understand. In Daniel 12, those of you that know me, you know I like the book of Daniel. And in Daniel 12, verse 3, it says, And they that be wise, Daniel 12, 3, And they that be wise, that wise being teachers, shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Wise means to be a teacher. And they're going to be teaching something. They're going to be teaching, one, about health reform, and they're also going to be teaching a whole grand understanding of the book of Daniel. And, of course, now we also have the book of Revelation attached to that as well. We are a people of prophecy. Now, those people that are studying, in turn, are going to be making more people wise. They're going to be making more teachers. But it would stand to note that if we're going to be teaching, we need to be teaching something that's right. Amen? And there is every wind of doctrine blowing today. Why is that? This quote, I believe, speaks to it. It says, It is a fearful thing to have great light and blessing, to have many opportunities and privileges, and yet make no saving use of them. Those who do not make a saving use of their opportunities will be condemned by the privileges God has granted to them. But those who walk in the light will have increased light. Those who have had the light of truth and yet have failed to walk in the light are under the same sentence of condemnation as were Chorazin and Bethesda. Shall not these warnings be heeded? Shall not these admonitions have weight with us? In the near future, it will be seen just who have been walking humbly with God and who have been obeying his orders. Those who have been walking in the sparks of their own kindling will lie down in sorrow. This is the danger. Walking in sparks of our own kindling. Ministers walking in sparks of their own kindling. And that they've done that, they're going to lie down in sorrow. Because why? Because there is a truth that they could hold. There is a truth that they could teach. That's why we call ourselves pioneer health and missions. But let's keep going. It says, oh, let us awake. Light is now shining. Let the windows of the mind and heart be open to welcome the heaven sent rays. Shall Jesus say to those who profess to obey the truth and yet who fail to walk in its light? In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which say, by hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted, and I should heal them. Matthew 13, 14, and 15. That quote is taken from CE, or Christian Education, 141. We don't want to be those that could have had great light but refused to walk in it. Now, what great light do we have? Well, I'm going to read you a few quotes. It's going to be a little bit quote-intensive sermon, but I'm trying to build a foundation for how we come together in unity. And you'll see, I believe, it will come together, hopefully by God's grace, very well as we keep going here. But let me read you this quote. It says, During the past 50 years of my life, 
I've had precious opportunities to obtain an experience. I've had an experience in the first, second, and third angels' messages. The angels are represented as flying in the midst of heaven, proclaiming to the world a message of warning and having a direct bearing upon the people living in the last days of this earth's history. No one hears the voice of these angels, for they are a symbol to represent the people of God who are working in harmony with the universe of heaven. So who are the angels? The angels are us, amen? We are the angels working in harmony with the kingdom of God to give something to the world. Men and women, enlightened by the Spirit of God and sanctified through the truth, proclaim the three angels' message in their order. That's another important thing. We proclaim it in its order. I have acted a part in this solemn work. Nearly all my Christian experience is interwoven with it. There are those now living who have an experience similar to my own. They have recognized the truth unfolding for this time. They have kept in step with the great leader, the captain of the Lord's host. Who is that captain of the Lord's host, the great leader? That's Jesus Christ, the captain of Jehovah's host, the angels, amen? Jesus Christ over the Father's hosts of angels that Jesus made, made for the Father, but by him. In the proclamation of the messages, every specification of prophecy has been fulfilled. Those who are privileged to act a part in proclaiming these messages have gained an experience which is of the highest value to them. Now, if it was of high value to them, do you think it might be some value to us as well in the message? Amen. It says, and now when we are amid the perils of these last days, when voices will be heard on every side saying, here is Christ and here is truth, while the burden of many is to unsettle the foundation of our faith, which has led us from the churches and from the world to stand as a peculiar people in the world, like John, our testimony will be born. Let us from the churches, even the very church that we thought was the remnant church we've been led out of, right? The corporate Seventh-day Adventist church. These great truths. One being the Father and Son message, amen? The first angel's message in its order. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that ye may have fellowship with us. 1 John 1, 1 through 3. I testify the things which I have seen, the things which I have heard, the things which my hands have handled of the word of life. And this testimony I know to be of the father and son. She's speaking of the 50 years of her experience. The first 50 years. The pioneer experience. We have seen and do testify that the power of the Holy Ghost has accompanied the presentation of truth, warning with pen and voice, and giving the messages in their order. Now listen to this. To deny this work would be to deny the Holy Spirit and would place us in that company who have departed from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits. That's taken from 2SM388. To deny this is to deny the work of the Holy Spirit and to give heed to seducing spirits. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? A lot of people just dismiss the foundations of our faith and who we are as a people. The first 50 years, what really defined us, they dismiss it. There are many people today that are preaching the Father-Son message but literally dismiss everything else. What does the quote say about them? It's not very positive, is it? Let me read you another quote. God has given me light regarding our periodicals. What is it? He has said that the dead are to speak. How? That their works shall follow them. We are to repeat the words of the pioneers in our work who knew what it cost to search for the truth as for hidden treasure and who labored to lay the foundation of our work. They move forward step by step under the influence of the Spirit of God. One by one, these pioneers are passing away. 
The word given me is, let that which these men have written in the past be reproduced. We're living in the kingdom of grace, preparing for the kingdom of glory. How do we do it? Let me read you another quote. Let none seek to tear away the foundations of our faith. The foundations that were laid at the beginning of our work by prayerful study of the word and by revelation, upon these foundations we have been building for more than 50 years. Men may suppose that they have found a new way, that they can lay a stronger foundation than that which has been laid. But this is a great deception. A great deception to think that it can be done some other way than the way they understood it. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, 1 Corinthians 3.11. In the past, many have undertaken to build a new faith, to establish new principles. But how long did their building stand? It soon fell, for it was not founded upon the rock. So at this point, I would say it's safe to know or say that we know what to teach. If we don't know what to teach, it is there for us. We can go find it. It's been written down. We can at least know what to study to show ourselves approved. But the question, really the great question is, how do we come to unity? Because there is a broad spectrum right now among those that call themselves father-son believers. There's a broad spectrum of all people that have somehow um, taken themselves out of what we see today as a structured church that is basically persecuting God's people for a myriad of, of things you can be persecuted for believing our prophetic message. You don't have to just be a father-son believer to be persecuted. But how do we come to unity? How do we affect this? Well, the scripture reading was Malachi chapter 3. And I'd like to go there again. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. And it's this first verse here. Of Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake what? Often one to another. Now, when they were talking often one to another, what were they talking about? Were they just talking about anything or were they talking about something that was focused and something purposed? If I think about the pioneers, when they spake often one to another, what did they speak of? They spoke of foundational truth. It says Brother Andy had brought out in his first message on baptism, the apostles were continuing, amen, they were continuing in the doctrine that had been given them. They were growing in it. And that's what the pioneers did. They were continuing in the doctrine that they understood. They were growing in their understanding for 50 years. They grew in their understanding. And guess what? I guarantee you, they spake off one to another. Amen. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. As they desired to teach and learn truth, then what happened? The Lord heard. He answered. Amen. And a book of remembrance was written before him. For them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. This idea of speaking often one to another. Now, how is this going to happen? I'm going to read you a couple of quotes that might be a shock to you. Maybe you've never heard them before. I don't know. But I'm going to read them. And then we're going to define what she's talking about here. Why would she make a statement like this? Well, would it be for us to have a feast of tabernacles, a joyous commemoration of the blessings of God to us as a people. That's taken from Review and Herald, November 17th, 1885. It would be good for us to have a feast of tabernacles. I didn't think that we were into feast keeping. But yet here she is saying that we should keep a feast of tabernacles. What does she mean? Let me read you another quote. 
These annual feasts of tabernacles are gatherings of the greatest importance and there should be a general turnout of all who may be benefited. That's taken from Signs of the Times, June 8, 1876. So as far back as 1876, we have a quote here saying that those pioneers were keeping the Feast of Tabernacles or keeping Feasts of Tabernacles, plural. So not necessarily just one. So what was that? This need to keep tabernacles, what did she mean? Well, let me read you another quote to help you understand this. It says, The forces of the enemy are strengthening, and as a people we are misrepresented. But shall we not gather our forces together and come up to the Feast of Tabernacles? Let us not treat this matter as of little importance, but let the army of the Lord be on the ground to represent the work and cause of God. Let no one plead an excuse at such a time. One of the reasons why we have appointed a, the camp meeting to be held, so Feast of Tabernacles and camp meeting, directly connected to each other, to be held is because we desire that the people of the vicinity shall become acquainted with our doctrines and works. Oh, wait a minute. A camp meeting, not just we came together and hang out, but a camp meeting where the people in the community that we're having the meeting in can become acquainted with our doctrine and with our works. We want them to know what we are and what we believe. We desire to make as favorable an impression upon them as possible. Let everyone pray and make God his trust. The people who are barricaded with prejudice must hear the warning message for this time. We must find our way to the hearts of the people. Therefore, come to the camp meeting. Even though you have to make a sacrifice to do it, and the Lord will bless your efforts to honor his cause and advance his work. Come to the camp meeting. That's taken from LT7, 1893. We want to get to the people's hearts. It centers around camp meeting. It centers around this idea of tabernacles. What was about tabernacles? Let me read you about tabernacles. Once a year, at the Feast of Tabernacles, the children of Israel called to mind the time when their fathers dwelt in tents in the wilderness as they journeyed from Egypt to the land of Canaan. The services of the last day of this feast were of peculiar solemnity, but the greatest interest centered in the ceremony that commemorated the bringing of water from the rock. Are you acquainted with this story? When Moses brought the water from the rock? Now Moses made a mistake, did he not? Because he smote the rock twice. He was frustrated with the people. And he said, shall I and Aaron get rock, uh, get water out of this rock for you? And he hit it twice. And that gave credence to them believing that it had been Moses leading them all along when he did that. Because he took it on upon himself and said, shall we do it? And so they had constantly murmured against the leading of Jesus because it was really Jesus that had been leading them in the wilderness through Moses. But they had constantly murmured against that leading and had blamed it on Moses. And now Moses basically gave credence to their accusation. And so therefore, he could not go into the promised land. God could not allow him to do such or the people would have believed that that was exactly the case. And so Moses was not allowed to enter to show that it really had been Jesus that had been leading them in the wilderness all along. Now it says here, when in a golden vessel the waters of Siloam were borne by the priests into the temple and after being mingled with wine were poured over the sacrifice on the altar, there was great rejoicing. A multitude of voices mingled with the sound of the trumpet and the cymbal, united in ascribing praise to the Most High God, for in their minds 
The water flowing from the smitten rock was associated with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Feast of Tabernacles, right? And this commemoration of the rock representing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're looking for the latter rain, are we not? Amen. The latter rain that will fit us to finish the work and enter into the kingdom of glory, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let me read again here. It says, The water flowing from the smitten rock was associated with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which they expected to receive when the Messiah should come. Now that's taken for Review and Herald, November 17th, 1885. Review and Herald, November 17th, 1885. So we should be looking for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Amen? At camp meeting, we should be looking for unity at our camp meetings. This was the purpose to bring God's people together. Those outside, those in the world could know us as a people. And those inside, us, coming together to grow in grace and to learn and to be filled with the Spirit of Jesus. Amen? To be equipped. You see, early on in the pioneer faith, as they were growing in their understanding, they weren't unified. But they had camp meetings. They had tabernacles, and they would come together. And this is where they became one. How are we going to become one, brothers and sisters? I put to you by camp meeting. We need to get back to the foundations of camp meeting. We need to go back to tabernacles. Amen? If you really think about it, the feasts in general are evangelism, either internal or external evangelism. But when we think about the Feast of Tabernacles, it was explicitly external evangelism. They were to look upon this and see what they were doing and to know that they were preparing for the return of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing that we are to do. We are looking for the blessed hope. Let me read this to you. It says, It is impossible to find a welcome in the denominational churches, and therefore the Lord directed that camp meetings should be held. It's impossible to find any way into the corporate Seventh-day Adventist church, amen? But if we, as God's people, God's true people, would put on true camp meetings, who knows what might happen? It says here, Thus the third angel's message is to be proclaimed. The Lord has especially endorsed this means of reaching the masses. Thus high and low, rich and poor, free and bond may be reached. It is a pleasure to see thousands of people sitting as though riveted to their seats. Now, can you imagine thousands Amen? Not just 50. <laughs> That'd be a big camp meeting. In many instances, in the Father said, what about thousands? Listening with astonishment to the presentation of the truth. What truth? The first 50 years, amen? Well, do you not think we're supposed to repeat history, are we not? It says in Revelation 10, thou must prophesy again. Amen? It says here, to them the Bible is as a new book. Oh, how earnestly they listen as things new and old are brought forth from the treasury of the word. Through this work, many from higher as well as lower classes have received the truth. The Holy Spirit has impressed human minds and men and women through whom God could work have been brought together in church fellowship. The Lord's going to grow us through camp meetings. Now, how important was the camp meeting then to them? Now, that one I just read was taken from 21MR443. I'm bad about giving references, but that was taken from 21MR443. As far as the importance of camp meeting, let me read you this quote. 
It says, we must have at our camp meetings Christians of the class of whom it is said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Those who seek the Lord in humility of heart will be uplifted and refreshed. So we must have at our camp meetings Christians. That's taken from you and Harold, July 23rd, 1908. But then she goes on to say, let all who possibly can attend these yearly gatherings, all should feel that God requires this of them. We need to be coming together. If they do not avail themselves of the privileges which he has provided that they may become strong in him and the power of his grace, they will grow weaker and weaker and have less and less desire to consecrate all to God. Come, brethren and sisters, to these sacred convocation meetings to find Jesus. Amen? Then it goes on to say, he will come up to the feast. So the camp meeting is a feast and he will come up to it. He will, pres- he will be present and he will do for you that which you most need to have done. That's taken from 2T, 575. <clears throat> Did you know this about camp meetings? Camp meetings are powerful. We need to be having them. Let me read you another one. These camp meetings are of importance. They cost something. The servants of God are wearing out their lives to help the people, while many of them appear as if they do not want help for fear of losing a little of this world's gain. Some of these precious privileges come and go as though they were of but little importance. Let all who profess to believe the truth respect every privilege that God offers them to obtain clearer views of His truth, of His requirements, and of the necessary preparation for His coming. A calm, cheerful, obedient trust in God is what He requires. Now, we're talking about the second coming of Christ. That's taken from 2T 576. 2T 576, thinking of the second coming of Christ, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing. When we ascend into the clouds of glory, whether we are asleep or alive, we're all going to meet up there, right? And when we meet up there, are we going to have a camp meeting then and become unified? Well, no, I believe we've been unified before we get up there. Amen? Amen. I don't think we're going to get up there and then Jesus is going to say, okay, now we're going to have a camp meeting. Now we're going to have this Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to get it all sorted out, and you guys are going to be unified. No, 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 no. It's going to happen beforehand. And we meet up there in the clouds of heaven. We are going to be then harmony because we did what? We did it down here. Amen? Let me read you another quote. (laughs) It's all camp meeting quotes. Our annual camp meetings are of great importance, and all who possibly can should attend them. They should feel that the Lord requires this of them. If God's people neglect the privileges which he has provided for them to become strong in him, they will grow weaker and weaker and have less and less desire to consecrate all to him. The object of these holy convocation meetings is that all the brethren may be separated from business cares and burdens and devote a few days exclusively to seeking the Lord. Review and Herald, August 15, 1882. Well, I think we've established that camp meetings are of great importance. And as I close, I want to leave you with this quote. It says, it takes all kinds of timber, fitly framed, excuse me, let me start over again. It says, it takes all kinds of timber, fitly to frame this building, and Jesus Christ himself is to be the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. 
This is the work to be done in our camp meetings. We are to build together, not separately. We are to work unitedly. Every stick of timber is to find its place, that a united framework may be made, a habitation of God through the Spirit. Let none of us strive to be first. But before I keep going in this quote, how are we going to fit the timbers together? How are we going to build a unified work? This work is to be done where? At our camp meetings. We need to be having camp meetings where we are talking about the foundations of our faith. The first, not just Father, Son exclusively, but the first 50 years, our foundational truths, like what we talked about today with baptism, communion, and there are many other truths. We need to be doing this, amen? This is how we prepare for the kingdom of glory is by camp meeting, Feast of Tabernacles. There is a, there, this feast has not yet been fulfilled, but we in typologically keep it, as she says, by keeping camp meeting. It goes on to say here, let none of us strive to be first, for if we do this, the spirit of self will work until there's no room for the spirit of God. Let no one climb up on the judgment seat, for God has placed none of us there. Let no one indulge evil surmising. Let us all draw nigh to God. Let us learn of Christ and wear his yoke. Our brethren and sisters are to understand that they are to have a part in the work and that their work is essential according to their abilities. We are laborers together with God. We must give to every man his place because God has given to every man a work. And if any part of this work is neglected, a complete habitation for God is not built. And that's taken from Review and Herald, March 28th. 1899. All of this makes me think of a verse in Revelation. Revelation chapter 22. As we close, Revelation 22, verse 17. Revelation 22, verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say what? Come. Well, you've been called, right, to come. Amen? So then what happens? And let him that heareth do what? Say come. Amen? So if you've been called, then you're to call others. And those that are thirsty, what will they do? And let him that is a thirst come. Because we may call, not everybody will feel their thirst. Right? Some may be wealthy. The Bible says the wealth is a defense. Others may have other cares, things that whatever persuades them away. Not everyone will be a thirst. But those that are, let them come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And when we think about tabernacles and we think about that water that flowed from the rock, it's the water of life, amen? It's a symbol of those to come and drink. And the camp meeting is a call to come and drink, to come drink of the waters of life. For us to come and drink and be filled, for us to call others to come to drink and be filled, amen? And to prepare to meet Jesus. We are to have a taste of of the kingdom of glory now. Amen. We're not waiting until Jesus Christ comes in the clouds to taste that. We can be tasting it now. And the way we're going to taste it is by coming together. So what is my vision? What, is, what do I believe? Or what I believe the spirit of prophecy is telling us? That in the very near future, those of us that are aligning ourselves with the pioneer message, the first 50 years, we need to start coming together. These missions, you know, we're kind of separate, right? We need to meet each other. We need to come together. We need to become settled and grounded in the truth. That is what God would have for us. And we need to understand entrance into the kingdom through baptism. 
We need to understand how to stay connected to Jesus Christ and to each other through communion and foot washing. And then we need to be settled into the faith and helping others to settle in by tabernacling together, by coming together in camp meetings as they did and growing in faith and having the Spirit of Christ being poured upon us. Amen? Amen. Camp meeting. That was the... If I had two words for this message, that's what I'd say it is. It's about camp meeting. It's about getting back to the foundations of what they understood and and letting the Lord bless. Amen? Bless us. I'm glad to see you all. It's been a blessing to be here. I guess we will decide how this appeal works because it will take some time to prepare to have camp meetings. We've got a year. I'm hoping it will be on the radar by next summer. You know, we can expect full-blown Pioneer Health and Missions camp meetings, not only on the East Coast, not only in Central America, but also on the, East, on the West Coast, and drawing our missions together and growing in grace and understanding and preparing for Jesus Christ to come, a settling in to the faith, amen, a settling into the truth. Is that your desire? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I come to you again in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that you have really laid a pattern for us, a pattern to follow. For many of us, it's new light, but it's really old light just being brought out again in a new facet. And I just pray you just help us to understand these things to become clear. I thank you for the messages that have been presented today by Brother Andy, Brother Thomas. I thank you for blessing me to be here. I just pray for all those that have heard these messages today and that will hear them, that you would bring us into the unity of faith. Whosoever is a thirst, let him come and drink. Let us drink deeply and let us be filled and then fill others. And I thank you for your love and mercy to us. And all these things I pray in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to the glory of our Heavenly Father. Amen. Let thy kingdom come. If you would like more information or have questions on the topics in this series, please contact us at info at phm.org.